We would like to uh, welcome you into uh, to Crossroads today. If you're visiting with us, if you're new here, or if you're joining us online, we're we're glad you're here today. Uh, this week on Monday, this past week, we <clears throat> had our first men's golf outing of the year. If, if you're unfamiliar, men, women, we have some different things going on for you on, on those, those teams, uh, men's in particular. We try to do some activity-based outings because that's what we, us as guys tend to like to do. Ladies tend to do more of the table groups. Guys, I guess, don't like to sit around coffee tables and chit-chat, so we go do things like shoot guns or play golf or play basketball, you know, those, those types of things. There you go. Got an amen over here on that one. But um, so uh, we had our first golf outing. And uh, golf's something I've always enjoyed doing. I've never been a, a great golfer necessarily, but uh, I grew up playing golf uh, on, on public courses kind of like this one. I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma, but uh, we would actually cross the state line and play this course in Joplin, Missouri called Schifferdecker, uh, part of a big. Uh, a big uh, public course or public park down there. And uh, sometimes I would sneak on to our local country club with one of my friends. He would sneak me on there, but uh, typically we would play here. And if you played public golf courses, you kind of know how they work, right? They're all, they're all kind of about the same. And I'm talking like this one's owned by the city of Joplin. Uh, you'll play it. The, the holes mostly are fairly straight, fairly wide. The rough isn't super rough. The greens aren't super hilly. Uh, but you play them, and, and sometimes there's a bare spot in the middle of the fairway because the the sprinklers aren't working properly, and maybe on the next hole, the sprinklers are working too properly, and there's a new water hazard in the middle of the fairway, uh, but that's kind of how these work. You finish your round of golf, you go into what they refer to as a clubhouse, which is usually just a building with a snack bar, and you can get a Coke or a water or a, a candy bar, and there might be a folding table with some plastic chairs around it, and you go on with your day. About eight years ago, we moved to Phoenix, Arizona. Now, if you don't know anything about Phoenix, it's like the Mecca for golf. There, there are golf courses of all ranges, uh, some really nice courses, some not so nice courses. They told us right off the bat, if you want to play at a course that's fairly cheap, go to one called uh, Trace Rio. So I went and played there one day. It's just south of, of the Phoenix Metro, just across I-10. <clears throat> Excuse me. It uh, looks like this. This is a picture of it. You can kind of see there's some dead spots out there. It's Phoenix. You know, they don't uh, they have some hot temperatures in the summertime, and I'm playing this course in August. It was brutally hot that day. Uh, but um, it, it was kind of funny because I show up at this course, and I can tell, like, this is not really anything fancy. Uh, I go into their clubhouse and uh, ask him, I said, I'd like to get a bucket of range ball. So I pay for it. The guy hands me an empty bucket and a token. I'm like, what do I do with this? He goes, oh, the machine's outside. I'm like, the machine, huh? Go outside, literally, it looks like an ice machine from a hotel. You put your bucket at the bottom, put your token in, and it dumps golf balls down inside your bucket. Okay, cool. So I get my bucket of balls, and I start looking. Like, I don't see a driving range anywhere. So I go back in, ask the guy, uh, where's your driving range? He goes, it's right over there, just on the other side of the parking lot. I look where he's pointing. I'm like, over there? He goes, yeah. I said, no, that, that's not a driving range. That's a mountain. He goes, yeah, that's our driving range. You literally would hit golf balls into the side of the mountain, and they would just roll back down. I'm like... I'm not in Oklahoma anymore, okay? So played my round of golf. This was a little more upscale because they had hot dogs in the, the clubhouse when I was done, you know, on that roller that would, would cook them for you. A couple of weeks later, one of the pastors on staff there at CCV told us, uh, hey, we're going to take you guys to, to my home course. He lives on this course called Copper Canyon that's outside of town. Uh, Copper Canyon, a little nicer. Uh, what you would expect on a, on a golf community type of course wasn't overly challenging. It wasn't super long. It was pretty wide. Really suits my game well, you know, when I kind of play side to side a lot. Uh, and so we played there. Nice course. We had a good meal afterwards in the clubhouse. Uh, very nice day. We go on a few weeks later, and they, they take us to a course called Wigwam. This is one of the top courses in Phoenix. It's just a beautiful course. It's like this whole resort uh, down in uh, Goodyear, uh, just on the kind of the west side of Phoenix. Uh, this was the hardest golf course I've ever played in my life. In fact, we had uh, several guys on staff there. I've never seen more pastors throw golf clubs and say words you can't say in church than I had on this particular day. Uh, they were ready to quit the game of golf because of this. Uh, the least fun round of golf I've ever played in my life when we played there. Uh, the, the greens are elevated. They all have a lot of hills in them. Even if you think you're hitting it where you want it to go, you get up there and your ball's like 60 yards away because it rolled down a hill. It's just brutal. It was no fun at all. I did hit a goose. That was kind of cool. Didn't expect to do that. More accurate with a golf ball than I am when I'm hunting. But, you know, another story. 
couple weeks later, the, the senior pastor of the church calls a few of us and says, hey, I want to take you to someplace special. He wants to take us to this golf course called Quintero. Look, look at this one. Suddenly, we're a long way from Trace Rios, right? Okay, we're a long way from those public courses. He takes us to Quintero. This has multiple times been rated as one of the top 10 courses in the entire country by Golf Digest magazine. Takes us up there. We pull up. There's a valet service waiting for us. They unload our bags. They put them onto our carts. They go park our cars for us. Uh, they take us in. They get us all set up. They fill a little cooler full of water for us because, again, it's Phoenix and it's late summer. It's really hot. We go uh, over to the driving range. It's not just hitting golf balls into the side of a mountain, okay? They actually have, I'm not making this up, there was a little platform at each station with a pyramid of golf balls on it. Like, I felt bad knocking them off so that I could hit them. But when you hit them, they just brought another pyramid out and put it back out there for you and took care of you. They had a course marshal that would send people to check on you during the round. We finished the first nine holes, and again, it's, it's early in the morning, but it's late August, so it's already 100 plus degrees at nine o'clock in the morning. We, we, we come up to the 10th tee, and there's this, this girl on a cart. She's got a cooler. She opens it, and she goes, here, would you like one of these? It was a towel that was soaked in like this mango oil-infused ice water. You know, she's draping it around. I'm like, am I going to be able to pass a drug test after this? I don't know. I mean, it's we go finish our round, I mean, there's another picture of, of uh, me actually playing it so I can prove I was there. Um, to those who asked, no, I did not hit the ball in the water on that hole. I was 20 yards short of the water on that hole. Um, but we finish our round, we get this incredible meal that's included with it, and I'm like, man, I can get used to this, you know? I can get used to this. This is, some, this is the good life. A couple days later, one of my friends goes, hey, we're going to go back and play at Trace Rios. Remember the one with the vending machine in the mountain? We're going to go play Trace Rios uh, Friday. You want to come with us? I'm like, I'm not a peasant. I don't golf at Trace Rios. I'm a Quintero kind of guy, you know? I'd become a snob. Like, I was raised incredibly blue-collar, playing golf on these public courses, and I loved the chance to go, and now suddenly, I'm too good for them. You ever do this? Do you ever get a taste of something that's part of the good life, and suddenly you can't go back? Like maybe somebody lets you go sit in the suites at a, at a Royals or Chiefs game one time and you're like, I'm not going back to the nosebleeds. I'm not one of, I'm not one of those, those you know, peasants anymore. Or maybe you get a chance to, to get a free meal at a four-star restaurant. And you're like, I'm not going back to Applebee's. I'm done with that, you know. Or maybe you get bumped to a first-class ticket. I got bumped to a first-class ticket one time. It was a 45-minute flight. <laughs> from Joplin, Missouri to, to Dallas, Texas. And then the next two flights, I'm on the back of the plane, you know. You get that taste of the good life and suddenly you get a little inflated sense of who you are because I could get used to this. And here's the problem with that. Enjoying the finer things of life is not a bad thing. But when you allow it to create a, a higher sense of who you are, you put yourself on a pedestal and suddenly... When you're on that pedestal, it's much harder to reach the people who are down there that Jesus called us to go reach. We're starting a new teaching series today called Shoes. And uh, over the next six weeks, we're going to look at six different people that Jesus encountered, that, that Jesus interacted with. Some of them walked with Jesus. Some of them he just encountered, as far as we know, one time. But what we know is when every one of them interacted with Jesus, their lives were changed. And so what we're going to do is see how their lives were changed and how ours can continue to change as we interact with Jesus today. And to kind of make this fun, we're imagining if they were here with us today, what kind of person would they be? What kind of shoes would they be wearing? Today, we're going to put on a pair of wingtips. Uh, these are shoes that a lot of you guys probably wore once upon a time. They were associated with being dressed up. You would wear these with a suit. Often, uh, people who were in high positions would wear a pair of wingtips. Think about lawyers. Think about CEOs or, or bankers or maybe congressmen. Influential, powerful people would often wear shoes like this when they would dress up. Uh, these aren't shoes that are, are super in style anymore. In fact, to prove that point, I had to borrow these from Tracy uh, because uh, I don't own a pair. And uh, I didn't know you were still in the room. I wouldn't have made fun of you if I knew you were still in the room. I only make fun of people behind their backs. I'm sorry, Tracy. So, um, but uh, somebody in the Bible 
that might have put on a pair of wingtips is a guy named Nicodemus. We're going to be in John chapter 3. If you've got a Bible today, we've got it on the screens if you don't. But Nicodemus is somebody who fits the bill of everything we just talked about. He was very well connected. He was a wealthy person. He was somebody who was powerful and influential. In fact, John right here tells us everything that we need to know about Nicodemus. It says in John 3 verse 1, there was a, a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Again, we'll pause because right there we've learned everything we need to know about this guy. He's a Pharisee. He's a religious expert. These guys had the, the Bible, or at this point was the Old Testament, memorized. And they were the, the experts on it. Excuse me, they were the authority on it. They were the ones who would determine whether what you were doing was right or wrong based upon, upon that. And beyond that, it says he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He's a part of the Sanhedrin. So the Pharisees were kind of these elite people among the Jews, the Sanhedrin were the elite of the Pharisees. So he's an elite of the elite. When we read that, we know a couple more things about him that we don't have to see out of Scripture because it just the, the historical context tells us this. You weren't a member of the Sanhedrin if you weren't from a wealthy and well-connected family. Those were positions of power. Those were positions of influence. They didn't let just anybody in there. And we actually know from some writings outside the Bible that Nicodemus' family was very well connected with the Roman government as well, too. This is a very powerful, very wealthy, very influential person that we're talking about today. Definitely the kind of person who would probably stroll around wearing a pair of wingtips. But we go on to say this in verse 2. He came to Jesus at night. And he said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Again, we're going to pause because John tells us a lot right here. Remember this with the Gospel of John. He always tells us a lot more than we realize. It looks like he's just kind of setting the scene a little bit here. But John is always simultaneously simple and complex. He's shallow and he's deep at the same time. What he's telling us almost always has extra meaning. He says he came to Jesus at night. This could be literally at night. I think it actually is. I think Nicodemus is coming after hours, after dark, because he's coming alone. The Pharisees often came after Jesus in groups, and, and he's coming by himself. I think he's coming after dark so that he can kind of sneak around and not be seen talking to Jesus. But with John, it's always symbolic or metaphorical too. Anytime in his gospel, John mentions something happening at night, evil is present. Something nefarious is going on here. Like, it's not just simply a case of, of it's, you know, past 10 o'clock at night. No, there's something at play here. And so I think both of these are, are, are happening here. And I kind of come to that conclusion because I look at how he addresses Jesus. He calls him a rabbi. And we see Jesus called rabbi throughout uh, the Gospels. We see his disciples call him rabbi. His followers call him rabbi. That's not uncommon. That's a, an appropriate title for Jesus. But of all the things you could call him, Nicodemus picks about the most humble name you could, you could refer to him as. I kind of think of it like this. Let's imagine you're a university professor, and you're extremely decorated. You're extremely well-respected across your field. You've got multiple PhDs. You've got multiple titles you could have. And somebody on the board of trustees or, or somebody that, that's a board of regents would come to you and just say, hey, professor, how you doing today? It's almost a little bit of a backhanded compliment. Kind of like saying, you know, well, she's a good athlete for a girl. You know, it's like you can't just say something nice. You've got to justify that it's, it's good, but it's, you know, not as good as it could be. I think that's kind of how he's approaching him here. Maybe he's trying to be snarky. Maybe he's not. Maybe he's trying to kind of show who, who he is and how important he is. I don't know there. But he does say that we know. He's using a plural pronoun here. I think he's referring to the Pharisees. We know the signs that you've been doing. He doesn't address the things Jesus has taught or the things Jesus has said or the people he's impacted. He just simply talks about the signs that Jesus has performed. Maybe Nicodemus is coming to Jesus with complete sincerity to ask him some humble questions. Uh, maybe he's sizing Jesus up here because he's interested in Jesus and he wants to partner with him. He wants to go into ministry with him. And, and you know, he thinks, okay, well, if this doesn't work out, I can always just turn him over to the Pharisees later. Maybe, maybe he's trying to show how big and important he is because he wants Jesus to invite him along on things. I don't know. But what I do know is Jesus' response to him is pretty jarring and it's pretty simple. 
Jesus basically says, if all you're interested in are the miracles I can perform, I've got no interest in you following me. No, Jesus doesn't care about the resume that Nicodemus brings. Nicodemus is coming, and I don't know if his resume is literally in his hand or not, but Jesus would know exactly who he is. And I think sometimes we do the same thing. We come to Jesus' resume in hand, wanting him to see, okay, God, here's everything that I am. And you should know this because you created me, but here it is anyway. Here's all the things I'm good at. Here's the things I'm not good at, by the way. You know, we're not going to talk about those. But here's how, here's how important I am. And just like with Nicodemus, Jesus does not care. Okay, now, granted, we're gifted by God for reasons, okay? And, and those reasons are to work for his kingdom. Okay, I, I don't mean that. But I mean, when we're coming with resume in hand, at times I think we're trying to impress Jesus or impress God with who we are and what, what we can do. And just like with Nicodemus, he's gonna cut right through all of that because he's much more interested in who you are at your core than what you can do on the outside. Jesus doesn't care about the titles. He doesn't care about the glitz. He doesn't care about the glamour. It's all about who you truly are. Back in the early 1900s, during World War I, Franz Joseph I was uh, the last king of, of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. He died in 1916, really as World War I was ramping up. And his was the last great state imperial funeral it was, it was held out in, in Europe really before all the empires broke apart. But as, as they had his funeral in the streets of Vienna in 1916, uh, dozens and dozens of world dignitaries showed up, thousands upon thousands of mourners showed up to pay their respects. His coffin was carried by six soldiers, and there was a seventh that was at the head leading the procession. And they walked through the streets of Vienna getting to St. Stephen's Cathedral. When they got to the, the, the gate of the church, the soldier at the front knocks on the gate. Gate opens and the gatekeeper steps out and announces, who goes there? And the soldier at the front says, we bear the remains of the royal and apostolic majesty, Franz Joseph I, the emperor of Austria, the king of Hungary, the grand duke of Lombardia, on and on and on, 37 titles in all. The gatekeeper looks and goes, I'm sorry, we don't know anyone by that name, and shuts the gate. A beat later, knocks on the gate again. The gate opens, the gatekeeper steps out. Who goes there? This time they scale it back a bit. We bear the remains of King Franz Joseph I. And he gives off 12 titles in a much more modest and humble tone. But the gatekeeper again bows his head and says, I'm sorry, we know nobody by that name. And he shuts the gate. Third time, gatekeeper opens the gate. Who goes there? This time the soldier removes his helmet. And he bows his head and he says, we bear the remains of Franz, our brother. At that point, the gatekeeper opens the gate and welcomes them in. Nicodemus came knocking to Jesus that night, and he came titles in the hand, and he came credentials in hand, and Jesus would have known all of that. There's little doubt in my mind that Jesus would have known exactly who Nicodemus was, but Jesus didn't open the door for him that night because Nicodemus needed to shed all of those things that separated him from everybody else. He needed to shed everything about him that made him elite, and instead, he needed to approach Jesus with humility. I don't know if he wanted to be partners, if he was trying to trick Jesus. I don't know. But Jesus, Jesus rebuked him for not seeing what was right in front of him. See, when we come to Jesus with resume in hand, he's going to throw that out. Because all he cares about is who you are. The you that he created you to be. The humble person that we're called to follow Jesus. I'd say it like this, you cannot come into the kingdom of God until you're ready to give everything up and embrace humility the way Jesus did. That's, that's really what it's all about. It's hard for us sometimes because we understand how God created us and how God wired us. And, and some of those gifts that we get are very visible. People can see those gifts. And we want to utilize those for the kingdom of God, and that's good and that's great, but they can't become the definition of who we actually are. Because when those do, that becomes what we're all about. And suddenly, that takes center stage. That takes precedence over simply being a follower. Paul says it like this in Philippians 2, that you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. That though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. 
I think the more I read this story, when I look at Nicodemus, I think he came to Jesus with his guard up, but I don't know that he necessarily came in an arrogant kind of way. I think his guard, his resume, his credentials were just kind of his defense mechanism. He came trying to, to maybe prove himself because he wanted to be seen as worthy of somebody who could come to Jesus. Because what we see out of Nicodemus are we see him asking some questions. Now, maybe those questions came off in a bit of an aggressive tone. I, I don't know. You know how it is when somebody asks you questions. Sometimes you don't take the question very well because of the tone it was asked in, no matter what the words are. But unlike other times Jesus interacts with the Pharisees, none of these questions are designed to try and trap Jesus. None of them are designed to try and trick him into contradicting himself. That's often what they did. I think he's coming, even if he's coming with a guard up, asking humble and sincere questions because he understands, I know a lot, but I also know I don't know very much. And this guy can tell me much more because he's asking questions rather than simply making statements. Let me ask this question to you. I'll kind of flip it. What do you typically do more of? Do you ask questions or do you make statements? Especially when it comes to God. Do you ask honest questions or do you make statements in his name? I know too often with the church, we've been guilty of doing the latter. We're great at speaking in the name of God and and even using his word as a weapon at times. It's a word, let's be honest, it's a weapon to use when we fight our own spiritual battles. Sometimes we like to go on the offensive with it to fight battles that are for somebody else. And sometimes in the process, we cause collateral damage by making those bold statements in the name of Jesus. So what do you do typically? Do you ask questions or make statements? And you may say, well, I, I make statements because I've been told if I ask questions, it's a knock on my faith. We talked about this last week a little bit on having doubts and how it's okay to have doubts if your doubts can point you in the right direction. But when we look at asking questions, we need to remember Jesus welcomes those. He welcomes your questions. I don't know, again, what Nicodemus's stance here was, but he's at least humble enough to ask questions and not just try and prove how smart he is. Do you realize that when it comes to Scripture, there are over 3,100 questions that are asked in Scripture? If somebody ever tells you God doesn't have space and room for your questions, you can just remind them of this. Over 3,100 times people ask questions either to God or they receive a question from God. 611 of those are in the Gospels alone, meaning those are Jesus involved in those questions. Again, either asking them or being asked. And again, we talked last week about how questions can make it look like we have doubts and doubts can make it look like we have uncertainty and that can look like it's a weak faith. But if those are funneled through humility and they're funneled through the gospel, those can lead to a growing faith. See, John recognizes something that I think is very intentional in the way he writes things. John understands what we understand, that our world is getting more and more gray. It's, it's not a black and white world like we would want it to be. And John illustrates this by pointing out that there are only two absolutes out there. Only two absolutes. There's God and there's Satan. There's heaven and there's hell. And those questions that we ask, how we ask them and what we ask and who we ask them to and how we respond to the answers that we're given can often point us towards one of those two absolutes, one of those two realities. Nicodemus, again, came asking questions. And I don't know, again, what his full point was, but I think he's understanding something here that to fully embrace Christ means to embrace humility more than embracing yourself. That humility becomes more important than becoming an elitist. Now, here's the thing on on being an elitist. I think when we say that word, you can think about certain people. Maybe you think about people who always only set first class on a plane or always only, you know, order a $200 meal at a restaurant or only set in the luxury suites. We think socioeconomic elitist. I would dare say most of us in this room probably don't fit into that category. But where a lot of us can fall into the trap of elitism is spiritual elitism. Now, here's what I mean by that. Some of us love to make bold statements to show how smart we are because we think that shows how spiritual we are. And sometimes that can hurt people in the process because we tend to look down upon people who aren't a part of the church or people who are struggling with sin or stuck in sin. And we weaponize the gospel as a result of that. That's not humility. 
And that's not the humility that Christ exhibited. Realize something about Jesus? Jesus never made a sinner feel worse about their sin. He tried to pull them out of their sin, but the people Jesus attacked, guess who they were? The spiritually elite, the Pharisees, the rulers who were making everybody else feel worse about not being perfect. Often we think about humility as making yourself seem like less, talking down about yourself a little bit. That's not how C.S. Lewis calls it. I love what he says, that true humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's just thinking of yourself less. It's removing yourself as the center of your world. It's removing yourself as the center of the universe and pointing outwards towards everybody else. We know this about Nicodemus, that the more he encountered and walked with Jesus, he embraced this same mentality. Because I don't know the rest of his entire story, but we do meet Nicodemus two more times throughout the Gospel of John. And each time, we see a pretty drastic change in who he is. Remember, when he first comes to Jesus, he's sneaking around at night so that he's not seen with Jesus, so he's not associated with Jesus, because he doesn't want that stigma. And he's asking him questions that, at the beginning, come off a little harsh. But you fast forward about a year, and we see a scene where the Pharisees have sent some people out to encounter Jesus, to, again, try and trip him, try and and trap him. And they don't like the responses that Jesus is giving them. And, and so they're ready to, to take him and arrest him, and, and they want to put him to death. And in John chapter 7, we see this. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and was one of their own number, talking about the Pharisees, asked them, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? In one year, Nicodemus went from sneaking around and doubting in the dark to publicly defending Jesus before his peers. And he doesn't stop there. He goes even further into his walk with Jesus because another year later, we read this story in John 19. Jesus has just been crucified and his body is is being taken off the cross. And it says this, afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. With him came, guess who? Nicodemus, who had earlier come to Jesus at night. He brought 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices and long sheets of linen cloth. There are two spots on this that really jump out to me. A, A respectable Jewish man would not touch a dead body. Now, not only is Jesus a dead body, but let's use our context here. He is an executed criminal. So nobody, nobody who had any self-worth whatsoever would want anything to do with that dead body. As far as the Jews were concerned, his body could lay there and rot. And here's Nicodemus, this man who was one of the elites in society, taking his body and preparing it for burial. Those 75 pounds, by the way, of, of perfumes and oils, that was a large amount of money that he's contributing to this. Nicodemus, in the span of a couple of years, has gone from sneaking in the dark to see Jesus to now not caring what anybody thinks about him. He is fully on board with Jesus. And folks, we've got to be the same way. Our walk with Christ cannot stay private. Our walk with Christ can't be for our benefit only. It needs to be for those around us. And I think you could kind of put it like this, following Jesus, it's often personal. But it can't stay personal. It needs to become public as well. I, I, I... probably I'm not going to spill out, you know, my struggles with everybody. And you may not spill out your struggles with everybody too, but I want people to see Jesus through me. I want people to hear Jesus through me, whether I'm preaching a sermon or not. I want people to know that I follow Jesus. That's all. It doesn't matter how much I know or think I know or how smart I am or think I am or how well I can preach a sermon. I just want them to know I follow Jesus. When it comes to following Jesus, we all have our reasons. We all have what it was that brought us to Jesus. But ultimately, when we look about following Jesus, there are typically three things that motivate us into. And I want you to think about this for a minute. When you made the decision to follow Jesus, what was it that led you to that? If you haven't made that decision yet, maybe you're facing one of these. But often it falls into one of three categories. The first motivating factor to following Jesus is fear. What's it fear of? I don't really want to go to hell. (laughs) 
Kind of like when you're growing up, there were things in my life I did not do. Why? Because I didn't really want my dad's belt across my backside again. Or as I got a bit older, it wasn't the belt anymore. I didn't want the keys to my truck taken away from me. Or I didn't want to lose certain privileges. As a parent, fear can be a wonderfully motivating factor for your children, okay? If it's used properly, hear me out on that, okay? But we have the fear of, I don't want the other option, so I'm going to follow God. Maybe you're like me. My motivating factor for following Jesus was family. It was family. My family has been generations deep going to church. And uh, I always joke that I'm, I'm what you call a Buick. I'm a brought-up-in-church kid. Okay, And so, yeah, spent most Sundays, most Wednesdays at the church. Anytime it was open, we were there. And when I say motivated to go to church, it was get dressed, we're leaving in five minutes. It was that my mom is furious at me every Sunday morning because I'm not ready to go yet. Parents, if you bring small children to church, let me say, number one, we're glad you're here. Number two, I understand why you might look angry when you get here. Okay? (laughs) We've all been there. Okay? Right now, that's my wife. I'm always here already. I'm here before she's even out of bed on Sunday mornings. Most Sunday mornings, if you see her coming through the doors, if she looks angry, just don't take it personal. It's not you, okay? It's my children, okay? But family, and part of it that goes with family is I didn't want to let my family down. I didn't want to let my grandparents down who had kind of laid the foundation for us. I didn't want to let my mom down. So that was a motivating factor for me. The third motivating factor a lot of us has is, is what we'll call failure. And what I mean by failure is you've tried everything else and it didn't work. You tried chasing the world. You tried maybe chasing another religion or faith. You tried trying to fulfill your own life and you just realized it didn't work. Okay, might as well give this Jesus thing a try. Let me just say, if you hit any one of those three and you're here today and you've made the decision to follow Jesus and you've stuck with it, no matter what three or what one of those three it was, let me just say, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here and you made the decision to follow Jesus and you're still doing it. If you're trying to make that decision today, and you're looking at one of those three potentials, let me just tell you the one thing that's kept us all together. The one thing that has kept us all following Jesus, it's not fear, family, or failure. The one thing that keeps us following Jesus is love. It's the love that God gave to us that we can then share with each other. And I hope that we get better and better at that part of it. It's understanding that no matter what it was, ultimately I realized I followed Jesus because he loved me first. He loved me before I even knew who he was and could make the decision to love him. And I say that because as we read on in this conversation with Nicodemus and Jesus, it kind of goes in these three waves. The first wave, it's kind of a back and forth. Nicodemus asks questions, Jesus answers, a little bit of a rebuttal back and forth. The second wave, he asks a question and Jesus just kind of takes over. The third wave, Jesus doesn't even let him ask the question. He just starts talking and shuts him down. And in the midst of that, Jesus is explaining who he is and why he's here. And right in the very middle of that conversation that he has, Jesus gives us maybe the greatest gospel truth of all, maybe the most famous quote of all time, when he looks Nicodemus in the eye and he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish, but would have eternal life. And I love how he continues on in verse 17. For God did not send his son into this world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. We might not have got that quote from Jesus if not for Nicodemus coming to him and asking questions. If not for Nicodemus showing just a sliver of being able to to bury his ego and embrace humility. Because right there in those two sentences is the entire gospel summed up. And it's that simple. I know sometimes it's so easy to overcomplicate the gospel. And if I'm, if I'm guilty of one thing, one weakness I have is that sometimes I overcomplicate it. But just so you know, that's the only weakness I have, okay? I want you to know that. <laughs> I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm that close, okay? I'm also extremely humble, by the way, just so you know. <laughs> Now, like four of you know that's not true. The rest of you, that's not true. Okay, I'll let you know. But if I do have one struggle, it's that sometimes I I like to try to prove myself. I don't look at it like I'm an arrogant person. I don't look at it like I'm any kind of, you know, intellectually elite person. 
but my whole life I've kind of walked with this chip on my shoulder that I feel like I need to prove myself. And so sometimes that causes me to overcomplicate something or, or to make it sound much bigger and grander than, than it really needs to be. But sometimes you just have to remember that the gospel message is simply, Jesus loves you. Karl Barth was one of the great theologians of the 20th century, first half of the 20th century. He uh, had some of the great discoveries and writings that still shape and mold our doctrine today. And at the end of his run, at the end of, of his kind of career, he was doing one final question and answer lecture with some students, and one of them asked him, Dr. Bart, looking back on your life, what's the greatest theological truth that you have found? And with a smile on his face, he simply said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Folks, when we look at what it means to follow Jesus, it's as simple as we need to remember what he did for us. And when we do that, we will shed all of the things that we have. The problem, I think, sometimes, and sometimes as Christians, I think some of us have been Christians a little too long. Now, hear me out on this. I don't mean you need to go, like, run away from the church for a while and then come back. That's not what I'm meaning. But sometimes I think we've all been Christians for so long we forgot what simple faith really is. We forgot what it means to make that decision and we just need a bit of a refresher. If you know sports, you've probably heard of Tony La Russa. He was uh, a guy who in the 70s went to law school at Florida State University. He played minor league baseball but went to law school at Florida State, graduated at the top of his class. He had job offers like crazy at elite law firms all over the country. He was going to be extremely highly paid as a first year out of, out of college uh, lawyer. But he decided as he was wrapping up law school, this is not for me. And he decided that he wanted to go coach minor league baseball instead. His professors were furious with him. You're throwing away a life. You're throwing away a career to what? Go make $2,000 and ride the bus from city to city teaching guys who may never play major league baseball. And he goes, yeah, that's what I want to do. He was in a rut. He was stuck in life. He needed something to refresh it. So that's what he did. If you know baseball, you know that 2,900 wins later and three World Series championships later, he retires as one of the two or three greatest managers of all time, maybe one of the greatest coaches in American sports history. Why? Because he realized that that life that he had wasn't for him. He needed something to refresh him. And sometimes I think we need to do the same. We've been walking with Jesus for a while. We need a refresher. That doesn't mean that we throw it all out. That's not what I mean. But sometimes in our walk with Christ, we need something to allow the Holy Spirit to just refresh our walk with him. And I think it's as simple as just some things that we can do every single day. If we want to get off of our, our spiritual high horse and remember who God created us to be, followers of Jesus who are trying to become like Jesus, I've got four Four things that you can work on that you can do on a regular basis. First one, we don't have a slide for it. It's in your notes. But the first thing that you can do on a regular basis is to demonstrate gratitude. Just learn to demonstrate gratitude. One of the, the pastors in our brotherhood of churches that I look up to, uh, a guy named Johnny, pastors a church in Kentucky, one of the largest churches in the Christian church circles, is the most humble person I have ever met in my life. I'll joke sometimes that I'm very humble. He is. You walk away from him going, whoa, I want to be more like this guy. And we asked him, John, when you're retiring, when you're getting to the end of your run, what do you want to be known as? He goes, I don't care if I'm known as a great preacher or a great church leader. And he is both, by the way. He goes, I just want to be known as somebody who is grateful. Every day when he finishes his Bible reading, the next thing he does is he writes a thank you card to send to somebody. And that's all he wants. He goes, I just want that on my tombstone. Here's John. He was grateful. Learn to demonstrate gratitude. Because with gratitude, often humility will follow that. Second, uh, choose to serve other people. We talked about this in the last series. We talked about what it means to serve. Matt's going to talk about announcements here in a little bit. We can serve in the church. We can serve in our communities. We can serve outside. But there's kind of one catch to this. Often in the church where we start, excuse me, we see we're going to serve others. What we mean is we're going to serve each other. And that's fine. But if, if I'm just serving one person and he's serving me and that, that's all it is, what good are we doing for the kingdom? No, learn to serve others. Put others ahead of yourself. Jesus said he came not to be served, but to serve. 
Number three, if we want to refresh our faith, is pay more attention to your own faults than the faults of those around you. This one can be very difficult, because if you're like me, I joke that, that you know, I only have one flaw. I'm not very good at spotting my own flaws. I need somebody to do that for me sometimes. That's where accountability can come in. So as a result of that, when you don't notice your own, guess what you notice? You notice them in others. Learn to spot your own and learn to embrace those. If you need to find an accountability partner, do that. Accountability partners can be an extension of yourself to look into your own heart and life and see the things that need to be addressed. Before you pick up a magnifying glass to look at somebody else, you need to look in the mirror and look at yourself. And number four, don't hide behind your dignity. Often we get stuck in a rut of spiritual elitism because what matters the most to us is what people think of us. Specifically, people right here. What is somebody in the church going to think of me if I do this, or more importantly, if I don't do that? What are they going to do and think if I have to go meet this person in this place to help teach them about Jesus? What are they going to think about me if, if I pray a prayer sometime and it just sounds like a, like a five-year-old prayer? You know what? Get rid of your dignity. Jesus doesn't care about that. He cares about your heart. He cares about your soul. And he cares about you. We're going to sing a song as we get ready to wrap up this morning that kind of talks about some of these very same attributes, these same practices that we can do. We invite you to join us. Cheeky shy on me, lift up your soul. Cause you've got. 
friends. I know, what a great transition, right? Um, my name is Matt. I'm the children's pastor here, and that's what this other thing is for. But you know what? If you, spring is a great time. Um, and if you watch sports, you might recognize that phrase I just used of hello, friends. Especially golf. Kurt mentioned a lot of golf courses that he's played. Or maybe CBS and March Madness. You recognize it yet? It's Jim Nance. Right? He opens every broadcast for CBS with Hello Friends. But what you may not know is that is a tribute to his dad. And he came up with that phrase when his dad was in the last stages of Alzheimer's. And he, and, and he, he says his dad vaguely knew his son was on TV and he was kind of famous. And so, right before um, the PGA Championship one year, he says, Dad, I'm going to give you a message on TV this weekend. I'm going to say, hello, friends, and you'll know it's me. And so he does, and, and then his producer says, hey, you should use that on Sunday. And then it just became iconic. Every broadcast that Jim Nance does, he opens with, hello, friends, as a tribute to his dad. But he, he goes on, and it's not just a story of that. It's a story of, of you guys and me joining him on the journey that he gets to go through. Because you see, this is the guy, Jim Nance, has done 32 Final Fours in a row. You know his voice. He's done 38 Masters. You know, last week I was playing in the yard with my kids after Sunday services, and my neighbor has an outdoor TV on his patio, and the only thing I could hear was Jim Nance calling the final round of the Masters. I was more focused on that, and I probably got hit a couple times with a baseball and didn't even realize it because I was listening to his iconic voice. He's lived the bucket life of a sports fan. He's called Super Bowl games. He's called Monday Night Football. He's called anything and everything. He's done the Olympics. And we're, we're familiar with that term, bucket list. Or kick the bucket. Right? And in fact, there's a, 2000, uh, there's a movie from 2007 with Jack Nicholson and, um, and Morgan Freeman that chronicles their exploits as they're about to die. Well, I look at Jim Nance and, and see someone who's lived that ultimate bucket life covering these outstanding sports events year after year and the journey he takes us on with him. And then I thought about Jesus. 
and how he lived an extraordinary life. But one a little bit different. You see, John wrote that it would be impossible for the world's books to record all of the amazing things Jesus did. And no doubt if the term bucket list had been popular 2,000 years ago or in vogue, many people would have been placing Jesus on their bucket list. Hey, I want to go see. I want to go hear. I want to I be healed by Jesus. I want to see him do a miracle, right? But Jesus had just one item on his bucket list. And the Bible chronicles this, if we kind of piece it together. The item was announced to Joseph before Jesus was ever born, and here it is. He will save the people from their sins. Jesus spoke about that purpose on many occasions, especially with his disciples as he walked into Jerusalem before that holy week. He had come to give his life as a ransom for many, it says in Matthew. He was here to seek and save the lost, it says in Luke. You see, every, and here's where we come into this, I think. It wasn't just one thing on his bucket list. It was all of us in that one thing on his bucket list. He came to die for the sins of the whole world, says in 1 John chapter 2. And he, one might say, crossed all of those items off when he died on the cross and rose again three days later. So as you prepare for communion, I want you to think about Jesus' bucket list and how you are part of that bucket. We're just one little drop. Many of us put together a to-do list at the beginning of the week or, or things that we would need to accomplish, prioritize, well, it starts right here, right now, with communion. It provides us a time to reflect upon Jesus' bucket list and remember that each of us was on that list. Dear God, we thank you that you died for the sins of the whole world and we are just one part of that. Each and every one of us. No one is excluded, no matter if they wear wingtips or slip-ons or flip-flops or whatever the shoes might be that we have on our feet. We are included in your act of sacrifice that we remember now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.